Welcome to Live at the National Constitution Center, the podcast sharing live constitutional conversations and debates hosted by the center in person and online. I'm Tanea Tauber, the Senior Director of Town Hall Programs. In this episode, we explore key influential women throughout American history and how these women inspired constitutional change with Tomiko Brown Nagin, author of Civil Rights Queen, Constance Baker Motley and the Struggle for Equality, and Elizabeth Cobbs, author of Fearless Women, Feminist Patriots from Abigail Adams to Beyonce. Jeffrey Rosen, president and CEO of the National Constitution Center, moderates. This program was streamed live on April 25th, 2023, and is made possible through the generous support of the McNulty Foundation in partnership with the Ann Welsh McNulty Institute for Women's Leadership at Villanova University. Here's Jeff to get the conversation started. Hello, friends. Welcome to the National Constitution Center and to today's convening of America's Town Hall. Let's inspire ourselves by reciting together the National Constitution Center's mission statement. Here we go. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the U.S. Constitution among the American people on a nonpartisan basis. I want to start by thanking the McNulty Foundation, whose generous support has made today's program possible. Their great support has also made possible the launch of our broader Women in the Constitution initiative, including the opening of our 19th Amendment Gallery. And I'd like to thank our partners at the Ann Welsh McNulty Institute for Women's Leadership at Villanova University for their collaboration in this great partnership. And now it is a great honor to introduce our superb panel. Tomiko Brown-Nagin is Dean of the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard University, the Daniel P.S. Paul Professor of Constitutional Law at Harvard Law School, and Professor of History at Harvard's Faculty of Arts and Sciences. She's an award-winning legal historian and is the author, most recently, of Civil Rights Queen, Constance Baker Motley, and the Struggle for Equality, which we're really excited to discuss today. And Elizabeth Cobbs holds the Melbourne G. Glassic Chair in American History at Texas A&M. She is a New York Times bestselling author, and her most recent book, which we're here to discuss as well, is Fearless Women, Feminist Portraits from Abigail Adams to Beyonce. Welcome uh, to Miko Brown-Nagin and Elizabeth Cobbs. Uh, Professor Brown-Nagin, let's begin with you. Why did you choose to write about Constance Baker Motley, and what would you like to uh, tell us about her as we begin our discussion? Sure. Thank you so much, Jeffrey, for uh, inviting me to be a part of this conversation with Elizabeth today. I'm thrilled to talk about Constance Baker Motley, uh, whom I encountered initially in the context of an earlier book called Courage to Descent, about Atlanta and the social and legal history of the civil rights movement. Motley argued and won the Atlanta school desegregation case. She argued it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And a part of my method in that book was including biographical sketches of all of the lawyers um, who were featured in the book. And I quickly realized that there actually wasn't a lot that had been written about Constance Baker Motley. Um, And I thought that was a kind of historical malpractice um, because she truly was spectacular. It's not a stretch um, to say that she belongs in the pantheon of great lawyers and activists alongside Thurgood Marshall, her mentor, and Martin Luther King Jr., her client. And let me tell you just a few things about her um, that support that proposition. First of all, she argued a lot of civil rights cases that are landmark cases, including Brown versus Board of Education, of course, the one of the most important constitutional cases of the 20th century that's been called one that reconsecrated American ideals. Uh, and then she went on after arguing, helping to litigate Brown to implement the case in the Southern states, in places like Atlanta, Little Rock, Mobile, New Orleans. Uh, So it's because of her that thousands of students were able to enter 
formerly all-white schools. And then she desegregated higher education in the South, in the Atlanta case, uh, Alabama, and Ole Miss, a case that she called the second uh, battle of the Civil War. And then finally, she had a life in politics uh, as the first woman Manhattan borough president. And finally, she was appointed the first black woman uh, to serve on the federal bench. So she was extraordinary. I'm sure I'll have the opportunity to say more about her. Um, but on the basis of some of those accomplishments, I thought uh, that I, I should give biography, a genre that was new to me, um, uh, a shot. And, and I'm pleased to have uh, written a book that uh, people seem to be responding to and resonating with about Constance Baker Motley. They do indeed. And it's so exciting to learn about her remarkable achievements uh, as you describe them. And uh, you have done such a service in writing the definitive biography of her. Elizabeth Cobb, you bring to life a series of women throughout history. You pair them so that we can compare and contrast their achievements in each historical era. Tell us how you chose the women you write about and how they built on each other's work in the, in the fight for gender equality in America. Yeah, and Jeffrey, I like to always say that feminism was born in the American Revolution, and it has driven American history ever since. Some of the key constitutional developments were really things that, uh, that feminists put forward, fought for, and that shaped our country, that really uh, allowed it to live up to its values on an increasing basis. Every value is a goal, right? So how do you get closer to the goal? Make to make a more perfect union. And uh, so what I, what I essentially did is I wanted to see what were the steps. I don't think we really had you know, a work I felt that would allow just an average reader to go, well, gosh, how do we get to a point from where our head of state is a king, George III, to where we have a vice president who is a woman of color? Now, the, the narrative arc between that point and this point is fascinating. And each chapter tells one what one rung in that ladder was to get to where we are now. And charts things uh, beginning with the right to learn and the right to speak. <laughs> Funny things, you know, you would think at that, didn't we get that before the revolution? No, the women got that as a result of feminist activism in the American Revolution. Um, how do we get from that all the way up to the point where we are today? And so each chapter not only looks at how each generation uh, pushed forward some signal accomplishment that really explains why we're sitting here even having this conversation, two women and a man in a public setting that would have been completely scandalous at another point. Um, and so how did we get there? And each, per, each chapter focuses on two biographies. And in that way, I'm using the same kind of technique that Tomiko uh, used in her book. And I love her phrase, Tomiko, I love your phrase, historical malpractice, because if we think we can tell American history without understanding these major contributions that women made and that shaped our country and its constitution so profoundly, we're, we're kidding ourselves that we actually know our own history. So each chapter has two people, and one is the one I call the face of feminism, the person who is basically a civic-minded individual, someone like Constance Baker Motley, whose own personal life might have been you know, more or less pretty good, um, and compared with a woman I call Why We Care, a person who's, um, who, whose own life shows what happens if you don't have certain rights and what kind of suffering uh, occurs that, it, that leads both men and women to say, you know, that's, that's not what we want to be as a country. And so each chapter has two people that tell that story. That's such a powerful way of avoiding what Professor Brown called historical malpractice in both the public face and the, the human face at the, at the heart of the case, which Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was always so attentive to in her own litigation is a really powerful way of telling the story. Well, Professor Brennigan, why don't we take uh, Constance Baker Motley up from her remarkable childhood, her, her immigrant experience, her unexpected educational opportunities, including at Columbia Law School, all, all the way up to her incredible uh, opportunity to work with Thurgood Marshall and the, um, and the LDF? Sure, happy to. And I'm so glad you mentioned Ruth Bader Ginsburg because uh, she called Constance Baker Motley her human rights hero. <laughs> um, one of the women who taught 
Ginsburg's generation how to use the law as a tool of social change. Uh, they also have Columbia Law School uh, in, in common. Now, Baker, as she was called uh, when she was a young girl, grew up in New Haven, Connecticut, uh, in the shadow of Yale University. Uh, her parents were immigrants from Nevis, and uh, that meant um, for them that they were culturally conservative. Um, they had traditional views about what a girl or a woman could do or should not do. They preached the politics of respectability. Uh, so Motley was expected to be a lady uh, and to be well-behaved. Um, and yet amid that conservatism, was a kind of a sense of uh, even, I would say, superiority that was born of their immigrant experience. Uh, now, uh, Baker Motley's father in particular um, evidenced a lot of racial prejudice against American Blacks, um, whom he thought allowed themselves to be debased by segregation. And so uh, one of the points I make in talking about um, Baker's early years is that either in spite of or because of her father's uh, prejudice, she grew up to be the civil rights queen, whose work, of course, benefited those same uh, black migrant Southern blacks. Um, she was able and to attend college, which was an aspiration that her parents thought was, was foolish, her mom told her that she should do something practical, like be a hairdresser. Um, but she Motley, was very intellectually curious. She was ambitious, um, and she aspired to go to college and was able to do so because of a philanthropist in New Haven by the name of Clarence Blakesley, a Yale graduate, who heard her speak at a civic organization um, one day and said, you ought to be in college and why aren't you? He wanted to know. Uh, whereupon he learned that her parents did not have the money uh, to send her to college and didn't even think that she should attend. And so this amazing man um, uh, uh, paid for her undergraduate studies as well as her law school studies at Columbia Law School um, where she was one of just a handful of women and Blacks. Um, and I want to note she developed close relationships with some of that small group, including with Bella Abzug, who was a lifelong friend. Uh, and from there, um, was introduced to Thurgood Marshall, who hired her on the spot uh, after uh, interviewing her. And she was so excited by this proposition and really um, thought of it as a dream job and contrasted her experience with Marshall with that, um, with other partners in white shoe law firms who took one look at her and closed the door in her face. Uh, again, another parallel with Ruth Bader Ginsburg and uh, uh, Sandra Day O'Connor and many other uh, talented women of the era. Um, and it, so it's because of her association with that civil rights law firm um, that she was able, she had the opportunity to work on all of these amazing cases. She worked there for 20 years. She was during her time at the Legal Defense Fund, the only woman lawyer and she was working with um, a group of alpha males. I don't think they would deny it. Uh, and she did you know, experience some disadvantages even in her workplace uh, with these public interest lawyers, but she was able to surmount those challenges and have a brilliant career in the law. That's extraordinary. Um, and the parallels to RBG, which are so striking, as you note, uh, Children of immigrants, both told to, to be to be ladies, to kind of uh, exemplify that sort of self-control, pr proud of the immigrant experience, but really pathbreakers after law school and getting that break coming out of Columbia. Elizabeth, let's begin. Your first chapter is The Right to Learn, 1776 to 1800, and your pairing is Abigail Adams and 
Abigail Bailey. And then you follow that with a right to speak, which takes us through 1865. And that pairs Angelina Grimke and Harriet Jacobs. Let's let's begin with uh, with those pairings. Well, so Abigail Adams, uh, she's the wife in the Adams household, John Adams. And this is really, in many ways, the epicenter of the American Revolution. This is ground zero, if you will, the fight for, you know, all the Declaration of Independence itself, the decision to become an independent country. And so in May of 1776, before that declaration is signed, before that controversy is settled, she writes her husband. And she says famously in a quote that many people will know, remember the ladies. And what she meant by that and what she said very explicitly is we're not allowed to make laws. And then she echoes this statement that is widespread in the colonies at the time, this idea that all men would be tyrants if they could. Now, this is a double entendre because every woman, the law allows every man to be a tyrant. Now, she says, we know a lot of men are not, but the law allows men to be tyrants and to exercise full tyranny. In fact, when the Constitution is written and it says, we the people, women aren't really the people yet. Women are not actually people. So part of the long constitutional battle up through Ruth Bader Ginsburg's generation is how to define the Constitution in such a way that women are the people, part of the people. And so a lot of people will remember the famous statement, remember the ladies, but they don't know John Adams's reply, which was, I cannot but laugh. Well, you know, oh, are you? Is this a race of Amazons? You know, is does, does George Washington need to now fight a petticoat army? I mean, so it's this real kind of put down. But the funny thing is that he actually gets another letter and writes a male legislator a month later, again a month before the Declaration of Independence, and he says, he says, depend upon it, sir. You know, if this revolution goes far too far, women will demand the vote. Now he says this. 150 years before women get the vote. So it's not like there's not a consciousness that, hey, you know, there's actually an argument here, but he doesn't want that argument to be aired publicly. And the woman she's paired with is another woman named Abigail. And that Abigail tells us what it's like if you have the bad luck to have, be married to someone who has full legal control over you and who actually owns all of your tr- children to whom you have no right to custody. Um, he has the primary rights. And this Abigail Bailey is, lives only a couple hundred miles away, and her husband is a sexual predator who not only um, preys on women's servants in the house, but ultimately on their own children, on their daughter, sexually preys on her daughter. And there's nothing she can do about it. Now, if she gets a divorce, guess what happens in divorce? Men have complete custody of their children. So her husband will have an even more unmitigated access to these children and hires the boys out, et cetera, et cetera. I don't want to go too far in the story. It's an amazing story. She gets on a horse. She runs. She goes 200 miles through the snow and the wind and the rain. And, and I'm basically, that's just true. I'm just stating a more dramatic way exactly what does happen as this woman strives heroically to save her herself and her children. So then in the next chapter, it's a pairing of two women who don't have the right to speak because women don't. And in fact, John Adams had written Abigail at one point, um, admiringly praising the new bride, of John Hancock, who he pointed out doesn't speak in company. When there are men around, she uses only her eyes to communicate because that's what women are supposed to do if men are present other than their husbands. They should not speak aloud. And so can you imagine if if uh, Tamiko and I were trying to carry on this conversation with you with our eyes only? It would be a little tough. Uh, and so Angelina Greenpeace, who's an abolitionist, defends the right of women to speak out and defends importantly, of, of enslaved Black women, who she says, are these are our sisters. I mean, we can't talk about this. So it's very controversial. And she has this crazy, in fact, the, one of the, one of the um, places in which she gives a speech, it's burned down. A crowd attacks it and burns it to the ground in Philadelphia, because how dare she speak publicly? And the other woman, she's paired with somebody who suffered far more greatly than Angelina Grimke, who was just scared out of her skin. Uh, who was Harriet Jacobs and who was enslaved and who's like America's Anne Frank with a happier ending, who hides in a garret for seven years to save herself, to save her children, more importantly, more dramatically. And so these are the stories that just sort of tell us, well, what happens if you can't go to school? Because in the colonial era, girls were not allowed to go to high school. That changes with the American Revolution and is a part of how we can explain the spread of knowledge and the spread of industrialization. And it goes back to these feminist demands, patriotic demands. 
Patriotic demand, indeed, such a central insight that the hunger for education and free speech, which Abigail Adams so powerfully exemplified, as did the other heroes, was then translated into a demand for the the, the legal right to uh, speak and the removal of disabilities, culminating in the famous statement, which you note, of course, of Angelina uh, Grimke's sister, Sarah, which, which Justice Ginsburg loved to quote, I, I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet off our necks. Uh, Professor Brown-Nagin, give us a sense of Constance Baker's Motley's remarkable career at LDF. She played a central role in writing the briefs uh, in Brown v. Board of Education. She also led efforts to um, get equal pay for teachers. And then, as you said, was central in the effort to actually implement desegregation in, in Birmingham and elsewhere. So, uh, and, and then you culminate in the fact, though, that she was passed over in the opportunity to lead LDF in favor of her mentor, Jack Greenberg. So, so give us a sense of that remarkable phase in her career. Sure. Well, I'm, I'm glad the, the word patriotic was mentioned because it allows me to point out that the lawyers in Brown including Constance Baker Motley, were able to prevail in part because the basic thrust of their argument was that we needed to be true to what we were saying on paper, right? Um, And so they were able to file these cases, uh, there were five cases consolidated in Brown versus Board of Education. Motley did write the original complaint um, in one of those cases. And then she went on to uh, write the briefs, help write the briefs in the set of Brown cases. And it was a very hard fought battle. Um, I describe in my book how the lawyers were required essentially to live in the office. And yet, guess what? Constance Baker Motley became pregnant at the same time that she was litigating Brown versus Board of Education. Um, And so she had an extra layer of challenge as a lawyer. Um, She did take maternity leave. Thurgood Marshall allowed it, uh, came back to the office and continued to litigate the cases uh, in the South, the cases that implemented Brown. Um, she did work on cases uh, about um, teacher salary equalization. Uh, she litigated one in Jackson, Mississippi, which was a frightening uh, experience for her, her experience of going uh, from New York City to Jackson, Mississippi, where there was no question um, about racial oppression. The lines of inequality were drawn so tightly that even as Motley was litigating on behalf of clients, she experienced racial segregation herself. So she couldn't eat in uh, a restaurant. She had to uh, rely on Uh, food that would be provided by friends of the NAACP. Um, She couldn't uh, stay in hotels. She was subject to um, uh, demeaning language. And yet uh, she did do something incredible, which was to stand in the federal courthouse in Jackson, Mississippi, and question Um, uh, the inequality inherent in the practice of paying black teachers less than white teachers. And so even though um, there was so much challenge, so much discrimination, just by being there, standing up in the courtroom and speaking, right, using her voice, uh, Motley was doing something radical. Now, uh, the thing that's so interesting, ironic, is that After Motley finished arguing on behalf of Black teachers in Jackson, Mississippi, she went back to the offices of the Legal Defense Fund and said to Thurgood Marshall, well, actually, I'm not being paid what I should be paid. I don't have the title that I should have. And could you please make this right? Um, Which was a bold thing to do. Uh, he did eventually correct um, the, the, the problem there, and yet it just goes to illustrate 
how much she was up against, but also how well she could maneuver in this system that was not designed for women. She was not supposed to be there, and yet she was and achieved so much success. Uh, so powerful. And that, that account of her arguing for equal pay for herself at the same time as she was arguing it for, for others is really, really remarkable. Uh, well, Elizabeth Cobb, our, our next chapter, which I think is, is worth focusing on, on, on this pairing, is the right to lobby Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Packer. And Susan B. Anthony, of course, the pioneering feminist lobbyist who you tell us led the petition drive behind the 13th Amendment, abolishing slavery as well as laying the groundwork in her declaration of sentiments for the right to vote. And then Elizabeth Packard, uh, tell us about both of them and their contribution to uh, gender equality. Well, I think many people associate Susan B. Anthony with the right to vote. And I actually had some editors say, are you sure you want to be talking about the right to lobby? But you have to understand that Susan B. Anthony did not live to see the right to vote accomplished. Um, and it's also important to understand that her involvement in constitutional reform uh, is even, you know, far predates the passage of the 19th Amendment. And it was she and Elizabeth Cady Stanton who together really were the first people to raise the problem of that the emancipation of proclamation of Lincoln, of course, only freed people in certain states, the states in rebellion, and not all enslaved people. But also it was essentially an executive order. It was not a part of the Constitution. There was no law and therefore could be reversed um, and changed. And so they led this petition drive to put, the, to put a new amendment into the U.S. Constitution, which became the 13th Amendment uh, to the U.S. Constitution. And it was Charles Sumner of Massachusetts who said, if you can get me the petitions, I will walk them into the Senate chamber and put this you know, on the floor of the U.S. Senate. And so she did. And Susan B. Anthony herself traveled with hundreds and hundreds of miles organized uh, biracial teams of speakers to go to all parts of the country, raising uh, awareness and getting people to sign these petitions, and then took hundreds of thousands of petitions into the U.S. Senate, which were carried into the Senate chamber by by two black men uh, and presented to Charles Sumner on his desk. And so that fight for the 13th Amendment just shows the ways in which uh, there has always been, from, from the time of Abigail Adams and Angelina Grimke and Harriet Jacobs, a deep intertwining between racial justice and gender justice. So Susan B. Anthony, I almost didn't include her, my friend, because I thought she was so obvious, but she turned out not only to be so important in ways I hadn't expected, but also so funny. I mean, she's just hilarious. She is such a, you know, such a witty individual. And then she's paired with Elizabeth Packard. One of the ways in which women essentially did not exist under the law, but in the ways in which their husbands had complete authority and control over them in, in almost all respects, is that a husband could commit his wife to an insane asylum if he felt like it. So, you know, the old, you know, old saw about, uh, oh, my crazy wife. Well, in that day, it meant you could put your crazy wife into an, an, an insane asylum for life. And this happened to a woman named Elizabeth Packard, and she fought it. I mean, God, it was a horrible struggle. The, the stories of what goes on in these asylums at this time and you know, the kind of punishment of patients is pretty horrific. And so she becomes involved in passing what are known for her as the Packard Laws. And the Packard Laws are the first laws to protect the rights of mental patients. Uh, such rights as the right to an attorney <laughs> or the right to correspondence, to like, get letters. And uh, and by the way, one of the people she helps as a result of this, you know, inadvertently, is another woman who's um, imprisoned, in, in a sense, incarcerated in an insane asylum in Illinois, where Elizabeth Packard was, who was Mary Todd Lincoln. And after Lincoln's death and the death of their two youngest children, her older son decided, oh, my mom's crazy, and had her committed. And it was only because of the Packard laws that she was able to correspond with an attorney and able to get out and able to live her remaining years at home with her sister. So these stories are so poignant and you just don't expect the ways in which the suffering that was caused by the lack of rights and granting women only privileges, not rights, and privileges which were to be bestowed or withdrawn by the men who were in control of them. Uh, so powerful and so important to note, as you do, that the women's rights and movement and the effort to abolish uh, slavery and to fight for African-American civil rights 
often portrayed as being at odds were in these two great figures very much united. Yes, very much united in these figures and in many, many others. I mean, really, you know, up through the present. And I, I always think that that's one of the myths about feminism. There's, you know, a lot of hostility towards people who stand up for women's rights, which include men. Um, and one of those um, critiques has been of the racism. And there's racism amongst some women. There's absolutely. But the thrust of the feminist movement has always been highly inclusive. Superb. Um, Professor Renegan, a question from your the account you just gave us about uh, Constance Baker Motley and Brown. As we know, in the affirmative action cases before the court today, the question of the original understanding of the framers of the 14th Amendment is central. And, and Justice Jackson asked, uh, you know, I, I thought that uh, there was race consciousness at the time of the framing. Justice Thomas disagrees. What did Constance Baker Motley find in her brief and what did she argue on, on, on this point? Yes. Um, so it's so interesting how um, the, the the racial history, uh, I think, becomes a bit distorted um, in the current cases at the Supreme Court. Um, the, the reality that Motley and her team found um, was really about how the 14th Amendment um, provisions of it certainly were meant to bring um, formerly enslaved people into the political and social community. Um, and the, the lawyers did argue that. Uh, and so that continues to be a strand of their argument that's relevant uh, today, although I'm not so sure uh, how much uh, this group of justices will actually take up that point in those cases. But I want to double back, um, uh, Jeffrey, for a minute to the notion of uh, Susan B. Anthony having uh, great humor, um, because Motley also uh, was quite humorous. Uh, she had a deadpan sense of humor, and it was natural to her, but also a part of a set of characteristics and a way of moving through the world that Thurgood Marshall um, nurtured in her. He, he always said to the civil rights lawyers who were treated horribly uh, in court, um, never, never show anger. Um, always have good humor. And so Motley's own inclinations in that regard, uh, but also her upbringing, the, the respectability, um, actually gave her tools uh, to navigate in an environment where, for instance, in the Ole Miss case, the lawyer for the state of Mississippi would not shake her hand. Um, he would not call her by her proper name, Mrs. Motley, in court. Um, he once called her Constance by her first name, which was just not done uh, at that time. And she jumped up and said to the federal judge who was presiding, I would like that lawyer to call me by my proper name. And I will tell you that even the federal judge, who was himself a segregationist, uh, actually instructed that lawyer um, to, to call her something other than her or she, which was his practice. And the resolution there was for him to call her the New York Council. Uh, so conceding at least that she's a lawyer, that she is supposed to be in the court, but still not able to accept her personhood. And then I also want to share the story about her uh, representing um, the student marchers in Birmingham who are part of the a great demonstration for against segregation there, of course, led by uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Um, when she arrived in federal court there to represent uh, some of those figures, the judge said, well, you're a woman. Um, and using that sort of indirection and humor um, that she had been taught at the Legal Defense Fund, she said, well, I am a woman and I'm also the NAACP lawyer assigned to prosecute this case. And then she went on, uh, not missing a beat, and, and uh, started to argue her case. Um, and then the final thing I want to say, pulling on that thread uh, that was being discussed before about feminism, is that Motley uh, did have a great 
group of feminist friends who were part of her support group. People like Pauli Murray, who was the women's rights lawyer. There also is a connection to Ruth Bader Ginsburg there. Um, Bella Abzug, whom I mentioned, who was the New York representative, the one who always wore the hat and was very outspoken. Her law school classmate, there was Shirley Chisholm, who was also a, a New York politician who went on to run for president. And so these figures, they were solitary, they were pathbreakers, but they did come together to provide support in a context in which um, they might actually show their anger or express their displeasure at all that they were up against. That's a very powerful uh, insight that they were, they were able together to express anger that they, they felt less able to individually. And I, I return once again to Justice Ginsburg just because uh, of learning her story. She, she, the most important advice she got from her mother was overcome unproductive emotions like anger, jealousy, and fear. And Justice Ginsburg said, I, I always did that because I always wanted to win my case. And if to, to show anger would, would not do that. But um, together, uh, these great women were, were able indeed uh, to demonstrate that. Well, um, Elizabeth Cobb, our next pairing is really powerful. Uh, Mary Church Terrell and Rosa Cavalieri, uh, two pioneers for the right to vote. Mary Church Terrell, better known, but Rosa Cavalieri, uh, uh, victimized by the infamous Comstock laws, which were invoked by the Texas District Court just two weeks ago to um, question the legality of mailing abortion pills. So tell us about this amazing story of Mary Church Terrell, Rosa Cavalieri, and their encounters with the Comstock laws. Well, you know, so much of this, it, it really does have this constitutional questions. Like, for example, Constance Baker Motley is being confronted with, well, you're a woman. And that is meant to encompass a world of understanding. And in the period that we're talking about, in fact, in 1908, there was a famous case called Muller versus Oregon. And the question was, are women uh, special? And in fact, Louis Brandeis, who was commentating on this decision, you know, basically said, we have to understand that women are a disabled class. Women are a disabled class of Americans and therefore can't have the same degree of choice about their own lives as, as men have. Um, and so the state treats them as, quote, wards of the state. So women are a disabled class who are wards of the state. I mean, just think about what that all could mean. So anyway, and that's, of course, what's fought and fought and fought all the way through Ruth Bader Ginsburg and is still being fought today, as you, as you say. So these two people, one, Mary Church Turrell was a black suffragist and um, one of the important important spokespersons for the right to vote, uh, as well as uh, civil rights, again, fighting on two fronts all the time. And uh, she's just this fascinating character to sort of show not only the heroism and the guts and the grit that it took to get the vote passed, which, as she said, by a miracle, by a miracle, the 19th Amendment has been passed. This is something for which women you know, John Adams opposed 150 years earlier. Susan B. Anthony and others have been fighting for explicitly for 70 years, 70, before it got passed. So she's such an interesting character because she does embody this sort of dual problem, you know, what today we call intersectional problem, of being a black woman, and an African-American woman, and also trying to fight for women's rights. And so she was getting it from both sides. You know, somebody, her, her husband was a very famous, important federal, uh, pardon me, Washington, D.C. judge. And, um, you know, his friends, including uh, Booker T. Washington, were saying, you know, hey, this is going to be a problem for you. Your wife is making enemies because she's talking about women's rights. And, uh, and there were, of course, there were women, especially Southern women in the um, uh, suffrage movement who opposed having uh, black people vote. And so it was this like really tough thing. And she later said she had met with every president. She had been in a room with every president from Garfield to Harry Truman. And the only president she never sat in a room with was Woodrow Wilson, uh, who is the president under which that constitutional change gets passed and ratified without going too much into the weeds. You know, he's, he's the person who uh, really applies uh, Jim Crow to the federal capital. Uh, she's paired with Rosa Cavallari, who, as you point out, here's a woman who, because women were not just not supposed to know 
They just were not even supposed to learn about. It was actually illegal to mail information on birth control or contraception in the United States because of the Comstock laws initiated by Anthony Comstock. And so here's a woman who, like, by the way, a lot of the women in this book, almost loses her life several times because of a pregnancy that she has no control over and no, no even information on what is conception. She doesn't even know that at the time. And she's an immigrant. So there's partly it's a, an Italian American story. And that's interesting too. Because so many Americans trace their, you know, know exactly who in their family immigrated. So it's that wonderful story of that period of time. And that a legal constitutional question as to whether or not the 14th amendment applies to women or doesn't, whether they are African-American, white, Italian-American, whatever, you know, are women a disabled class? Wow. Um, remarkable questions that the, the uh, text of that Comstock law, which uh, is so relevant today, uh, was explored on a recent uh, We the People podcast. So folks who want to hear the arguments about whether or not that applies to the abortion pill on, on both sides can can hear that. And and, and what, a, what an insight about Woodrow Wilson being the only president who never met with uh, this great uh, woman as well. Um, Tamika Brown-Nagin, we're, we're around the time of uh, Constance Baker Motley's pathbreaking work in Birmingham. What, what a quotation you have from Martin Luther King paying tribute to Constance Baker Motley. There have emerged leaders of great renown, uh, Martin Luther King said, citing Clarence Darrow, Wendell Wilkie, Thurgood Marshall, Charles Houston, Jack Greenberg, and that Portia Constance Baker Motley. Uh, so take us up from her advocacy in Birmingham to her career in politics, where she was uh, one of three African-American members of the New York State Senate, first black Manhattan borough president, and her remarkable achievements leading up to her nomination to the federal bench. Sure. They admired each other, Motley and Martin Luther King Jr. And uh, some audience members may be aware um, of the significance of King lifting up Motley, who was a woman who was working in a profession um, that is uh, quite atypical for women, um, lifting her up and classing her with those amazing male lawyers it is quite the compliment coming from him in particular because the, the scholarship uh, has focused on how King was not actually accepting of women leaders. Um, while he did accept Motley, he admired her. Uh, he was her client, as I mentioned, in Birmingham, uh, which was this uh, fight against segregation that involved violence, uh, even inflicted on young children. Um, Motley represented both uh, King and some of the children who were not only uh, arrested or confined after protesting segregation, but also expelled from school. Um, and the expulsions and suspensions from school uh, really were deeply problematic for the parents, uh, many of whom had not wanted their children to participate in these marches anyway. Um, and it turned out that it wasn't just a one-off, right? It wasn't just that they were uh, in trouble around the marches, um, but they had been thrown out of school. And, you know, these are parents who believe deeply in education. They wanted their uh, children to graduate and to be educated. Um, and so the parents were really angry at Martin Luther King Jr. Um, and the movement uh, was experiencing um, a, a period of, of great weakness because of that. And Motley comes in and she really does save the day by arguing that the students had constitutional rights to protest, uh, that they should not be punished um, uh, because of those, those rights. Um, and she prevailed. Um, and it's in that context that uh, Martin Luther King Jr. is just, he, he's so grateful to her um, for what she's able to do for uh, the movement. And then, um, you know, she achieved so much in terms of her litigation career. I should mention that she argued uh, 10 cases in the U.S. Supreme Court, winning nine of them. She's the first Black woman known to have argued in the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, and then 
she does experience a setback uh, in that she wants to be the successor to Thurgood Marshall at the Legal Defense Fund after he is appointed uh, to the federal bench. He does not choose her, and it's very hurtful to her. Thurgood Marshall is her mentor. Um, She uh, asserts that uh, he doesn't choose her because he and other men at the time are not able to appreciate that women and leader can go together, uh, that she could, in fact, carry this civil rights organization. Um, But that setback actually opens her up to this career in politics. You know, she had name recognition. She had a sterling reputation. And so she was uh, a very attractive candidate uh, for the Democrats in New York. She's elected to the Senate. Then she's elected Manhattan Borough President. And she is able in that context to pursue um, equal rights through the processes of the legislature. Um, and she does do things like social support for women um, and uh, has uh, quite a good career in politics. But before she knows it, she is uh, being ushered into uh, the White House with Lyndon Baines Johnson, uh, who appoints her to the federal bench. And so she has a very short career in politics um, and caps off her career with this seat on the federal bench in which, yet again, she has the opportunity um, and people think that she will express her commitment to equality. Um, The story I tell is a little different in that, of course, as a judge, she faces constraints of role that she hadn't had as a lawyer. Uh, And so this, this book does allow me to point out um, uh, that although many of her friends are just thrilled when she goes onto the bench, um, she's a, she's a judge who calls them like she sees them. Um, and so sometimes, uh, litigants win in her courtroom, the progressive litigants, sometimes they don't. And that is as it should be, uh, in her view and according to her philosophy. Really, uh, powerful emphasis on her sense of role. I, I, I return to it only because uh, it's uh, the, the, the natural association sh- shared again by, by Justice Ginsburg, who distinguished between what she called her career as a flaming feminist, you know, in the 70s, and, and her deep sense of uh, limitations as an appellate judge and, and, and also as a Supreme Court justice. Well, we're now at the right to earn, uh, which takes us from 1920 to 1960, and that pairs Frances Perkins and Anne-Marie Reeve, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Tell us about them. Yeah, you've got that. Um, so property rights. I mean, do you own your property or not? And of course, when we talk about the, we, we, you hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and they're titled by their creator of certain inalienable rights. You know, and, and one of those, as originally phrased by John Locke, was the right to property. And that Jefferson phrases it differently as the pursuit of happiness, but it means essentially the same thing, the right to do stuff and to to reap the rewards of your efforts. And so women did not have, and up and through the early 20th century even, um, the, the uh, state legislatures would sometimes pass more liberal property rights and say, yeah, if, if a woman has a job and she earns money, well, that belongs to her. And then the courts would say, well, yeah, of course it does, as long as it's her husband agrees. You know, as long as he gives his permission for her to keep her wages. And so in local in localities and in states, there's always this contest about what does it actually mean to earn? And uh, Anne-Marie Reeb was a young woman uh, from North Dakota. And I love this story. I mean, it's kind of fun because the stars of American history have all these different profiles. And one of them has a cowboy hat on because she was uh, a rancher. And but she was also trying to make her way through the Great Depression. The worst ecological catastrophe as well that coincided with the economic collapse was the Dust Bowl. And so she's in the Dust Bowl. And, she, and, and what she earns as a teacher is the only way, it's her only grip on just making it through this incredibly grim period of time. And she's, I guess, a, a pretty young woman, very interesting and fun. And she gets countless marriage proposals. But she says, I can't accept these because I lose my, I lose my right to earn. You know, I, I will be fired from my job 
I mean, she's a teacher. It was there and every, you know, every schoolhouse had this rule. You could not teach and be married. And so she would have had given up all of her personal autonomy. This question again, are you a disabled class or are you somebody who has the same rights as anyone else, meaning men? So that's her story. And it's this great story that takes place out in the Great Plains. And then the other person is Frances Perkins, who uh, is the first woman to serve in any presidential cabinet, uh, the highest ranking woman uh, in American history up to that point. She serves as labor secretary for Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And what we fail to appreciate, and again, historical malpractice here, is the notion of how much of what we still hold on to today from the New Deal, how many of the really signature accomplishments of the New Deal that benefits us to this very moment were the product largely of Frances Perkins. And she went to the president. She didn't want this job. She knew she'd be a target and a, you know, constantly under attack. And she had a, an ill husband who, for whom she was the sole support and a child. And uh, she said, well, I will only take this job if you let me fight for three things, which nobody thought could happen. Social security, a minimum wage, and um, unemployment insurance. And he said, well, Francis, you know, I don't see how in the world you can get that through constitutionally. But um, yeah, I'm happy to support your effort. So anybody in our audience who's ever collected unemployment insurance, who's ever worked for the minimum wage, who's ever collected any form of social security, really you know, has many people to thank, but primarily and first above all would be Frances Perkins. So this is part of this idea of how feminism, and she was a suffragist, that's, you know, she's, she's a part of that movement. How these women who think of their mission as being more than just some narrow, petty thing, but think this is America. You know, we need to live up to what we say we do for people. And and this was the fight that Frances Perkins handled so ably, you know, uh, handed her resignation in three more times. She didn't want, want the job. And every time that FDR was elected, she said, you know, hey, would you like my resignation? He said, no, I can't do without you, Frances. Wow. So, so, so Social Security, the minimum wage, uh, passed over doubts about its constitutionality and you know, at a time when she's the only uh, woman in the cabinet, remarkable achievements. Uh, Professor Brown-Nagan, we're now at uh, the time of uh, Judge Motley's judicial service. Tell us about her judicial philosophy, her leading cases, including the one where she was asked to recuse herself because of her sex and what her judicial legacy is. Hmm. Um, Happy to talk about that. As I was saying before, um, she was acutely aware of role. Um, she was uh, just as likely to rule um, uh, for defendants, in fact, more likely to rule for defendants uh, than plaintiffs in some of the cases um, that involved uh, race and sex discrimination, which is to say um, she was no different from any other judge. Uh, those are hard cases to win. And although both her friends and her foes expected her and wanted her uh, to, to rule for their side, in fact, Polly Murray, when she was uh, confirmed to the bench, sent her a note that said, hooray for our side, um, because they're, they're happy. One of their own will be on the bench, and I think that's going to mean that the, you know, the, the, the women's uh, uh, interests or um, the interests of, of people of color would always prevail, but that's not what happened. Um, uh, as I describe in the book, Motley was uh, more of a judicial pragmatist, uh, certainly than any kind of um, you know radical or even uh, liberal on the bench. Although she was certainly a political liberal, a New Deal uh, liberal, by the way. Um, but in terms of the cases that she handled on the bench, um, she was more pragmatic. Um, and of course, a part of that is because she was on the district court. She was constrained by precedent. Um, and I should mention that there was a concerted effort to keep her off of the Court of Appeals and the Supreme Court um, uh, because uh, it was thought that you know, she couldn't handle the, uh, the, the financial cases in New York City. Same thing was said about Ruth Bader Ginsburg and some other public interest lawyers, by the way, who 
ended up going into the bench, um, that these more complex financial cases were outside of their realm. So Motley, um, uh, you know, she, she does have some uh, progressive judicial rulings. I can tell you about a few, but the thing I want readers to take away from that section of the book is really about the constraints on anyone um, that theoretically should apply in the judicial role. Um, Motley took that seriously. And so the cases where um, women plaintiffs, for instance, did prevail um, are ones where the evidence is just overwhelming. You know, the kinds of sex discrimination cases, those early uh, cases where uh, there was little doubt that women were disfavored. One of those cases involved Sullivan and Cromwell, the elite New York law firm um, that uh, was subjected to one of the early cases about whether um, professional types of employment like law um, would be subject to the same rules of non-discrimination um, that the blue-collar jobs were. Um, a set of uh, women uh, law students uh, brought this case arguing that um, Selwyn Cromwell did not hire them consistent with their credentials, or if they were hired, they weren't promoted, they could never make partner. Uh, and Constance Baker Motley, by a spin of the wheel, uh, so by by random, by lottery, drew the case. And the lawyer representing Sullivan and Cromwell was not happy. He actually wrote her a letter um, arguing that she should remove herself from the case because as a woman, she likely had experienced discrimination. And therefore, he said that she had a mindset uh, and she didn't even know it. She wasn't even aware of her mindset that would predispose her to rule on behalf of uh, the women. And in a famous uh, decision, her most famous decision, Motley uh, ends up rejecting what became a formal motion for recusal by turning the argument on its head, um, holding that if sex or race or practice background um, alone were grounds for recusal, then no judge uh, could hear the case. Because, of course, men have a gender and whites have a race. And so it's just a brilliant opinion um, that is cited even today for the proposition um, that identity alone can't be the basis for um, uh, uh, recusals of judges from cases. Um, there were other really important decisions uh, in the sex discrimination uh, arena. She opened up uh, not only the doors of elite law firms to women, but also um, locker rooms um, uh, to female journalists. Uh, there's a famous case involving the New York Yankees where a woman sports reporter uh, wanted to cover um, the series on the same basis as men, uh, which meant she needed to go into the locker room. Um, the New York Yankees argued, you know, she can't do this. It, it, it violates the privacy interests of, of men. And Motley said, no, let them wear towels. Um, in other words, one can square the privacy rights of, of men with um, uh, the need for women to earn a living on the same basis as men. So those are some of her cases um, uh, that uh, show her philosophy, which is, of course, she would rule on behalf of, of women and people of color when the fact showed and the law showed um, that they, uh, they deserved um, uh, to win. Um, but she did not bend over backwards to, um, uh, to rule in favor of anyone. Some memorable examples of her pragmatism, uh, common sense, and a deep sense of the judicial role. Well, we have time for one last pairing before closing thoughts, and that takes us squarely into the era of Constance Baker Motley, and that's the right to equal treatment, Martha Katera and Yvonne Swan. Professor Coz, tell us about them. Well, as I said, each chapter gets us to a different place in the story that ultimately gets us to today. So 
that chapter is on the right to equal treatment, followed by the right to compete, and followed lastly by the right to uh, physical safety, which is something that's still very, very tenuous for us today, for women today. And that particular pairing, that's the period of the second wave. And I think many readers would suspect that, you know, you choose Gloria Steinem or something. And the important thing to understand about American feminism uh, is the is its great reach, its great diversity geographically, um, in terms of ethnic background, in terms of economic interests. And so it, we can't explain it if we can't understand who were the leaders who took feminism into new areas. And uh, the face of feminism in this chapter is a woman still living named Martha Cotera, who is uh, from Austin, Texas, and a Chicana, and wrote a book called The Chicana Feminist uh, in the mid-1970s and was a a really important organizer in the um, International Women's Year uh, meetings in Houston that also happened in the mid-70s. And she's just this person who... The, the nature of second wave feminism was its extreme, extraordinary reach and its development of all kinds of services that helped women with the kind of daily challenges that women face. So the development of rape crisis centers or free clinics or reproductive rights. These are the kinds of things that Martha Cotera is just such a face of. And she was a close friend of Lady Bird Johnson, the wife of Lyndon Baines Johnson. She was very close, uh, knew very well Ann Richards and Sarah Weddington, who, of course, argued the case Roe v. Wade. And she's just this person who really shows us that it's it's silly and disrespectful to call feminism a white movement. It utterly ignores the magnificent contributions of a lot of women of color who were doing things from the very, very beginning, including people like Martha Cotera, who had such a profound impact. And then the woman who's the kind of why we care figure as a Native uh, woman, Native American woman, indigenous woman named Yvonne Swan, who at the time was better known by her married name, Yvonne Wanro. And she was a woman who... uh, confronted a predator, a known predator who broke into her, their house. She was there at her babysitter's house. Uh, several small children there. She's there. There are no men present. She has a gun and she lifts it as this man who's a known predator comes to her and they're screaming at him to get out. And, you know, it's quite a remarkable story. And she lifts this gun and he gets so close that the muzzle of the gun meets his shirt. And then she fires a shot and he's killed instantly. It's right at his chest. He's a foot taller than she is. And she's sentenced to 20 years in prison for murder. And so this begins a debate about what does equal treatment really mean? You know, if uh, the size difference between men and women is ruled uh, uh, irrelevant, uh, the court decides it on the basis that if she were a reasonable man, a reasonable man should just raise his fists if another man comes at him unarmed. And that's what a reasonable man would do. But what a reasonable man would do is very different from what a, this kind of threat a reasonable woman would confront. And so that's a very important legal case. It's, it's challenged. Uh, ultimately, it's the Washington State Supreme Court who says no, given the history of sex discrimination, given the, you know, all these various kinds of differences between men and women, that there has to be some consideration of those differences uh, to give a person really, truly equal treatment under the law. And so her, her case, she also is still living a remarkable, wonderful, inspiring woman. Superb. Uh, well, it's time for closing thoughts in this wonderful discussion. Lots of enthusiasm from the audience, including Uh, a comment from Bill Child. So fascinating to learn about these incredible women. And indeed it is telling the story of the constitution and American history through these biographies uh, is incredibly compelling. Um, Anne-Marie Hines poses a question to both of you that I'm going to pose as well for your closing thoughts. And that is this, what would you both say is the most important thing to take away from each of your books that we could perhaps apply to each of our own lives? And Professor Brown-Nagan, first to you. Sure. I would say that a really important thing to take away uh, from uh, my work, and it sounds like from Elizabeth's work as well, is that the opportunities that can be lost when we do not recognize the talents of, uh, of women. And I believe that you know, talent exists in, in every population. It's opportunity that can be lacking. Um, and so I, I hope that readers take away from this work on Constance Baker Motley, 
whom, as I said, was born in working class New Haven. Uh, she, she would not be the first person that one would think of as uh, capable of changing um, the Constitution and making life better for so many people, but she did. Uh, and so uh, let us be open to opportunity in all populations, I would say, um, as we move forward. Wonderful. Uh, very well said indeed. And uh, Professor Elizabeth Cobbs, la last word to you. Uh, what What is it that our great audience members uh, can take away from your book that they can apply to their own lives? I think the most important thing is that feminism born in the American Revolution that has advanced the American experiment from the first days up to the present, that this is a powerfully uniting value in American history. And I think that when we allow people divisively to say, oh, I'm not a feminist or, or she's a feminist, it's just, uh, it's running down and disparaging an important American value. And it's, it's one reason why it's so important to embrace these values now that def have defined us historically is it can really help us, especially in times of division, uh, when um, contrary values tend to get normalized through repetition. You know, women are inferior. You know, women should not have control over things. Uh, women stay out. You know, uh, you know, men are entitled to things they're entitled to, they're to grab women wherever they want. That can easily be normalized if we don't all say, as 91% of Americans do in Pew polls, that they support gender equality. And that's one of the most highly held values of the American populace. So I'd like everybody to take away that, you know, that maybe they're feminist patriots too. And that feminist patriotism is really what has helped us to become a better country. Feminist patriotism has helped us to become a better country. Uh, great uh, final thoughts in this Wonderful discussion. I'm so grateful to the McNulty Foundation and the Ann Welsh McNulty Institute for Women's Leadership at Villanova University for their partnership and support. And so grateful to two great scholars, uh, Tamiko Brown-Nagan and Elizabeth Cobbs for enlightening and inspiring us with the story of these great American women. Uh, Tamiko Brown-Nagan, Elizabeth Cobbs, thank you so much. This episode was produced by John Guerra, Lana Ulrich, Bill Pollack, and me, Tanea Tauber. It was engineered by the National Constitution Center's AV team. Research was provided by Sophia Gardell. Check out our full lineup of exciting programs and register to join us virtually at constitutioncenter.org. As always, we'll publish those programs on the podcast, so stay tuned here as well. Or watch the videos. They're available in our media library at constitutioncenter.org slash media library. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Live at the National Constitution Center on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Tanea Tauber. <laughs>